are going to wrap up um, the book of Nehemiah. We are in week 18 of 18. For those of you who have been here most of the time, congratulations. That is perseverance. These last few weeks have been... um, They've been a little bit challenging walking through the list, but it's been fruitful. I hope it's been beneficial to you. Um, I'm going to, uh, well, I think we will enjoy this a little bit more tonight um, because we get out of the lists and we're going to end. Um, it's kind of a somber note, but I think there's a lot of good stuff in it. And so we're going to walk through 31 verses. But for those of you who have not been here, just to catch you up on what the book of Nehemiah has looked like outline-wise, there's 13 chapters. And this is one of the last books written before the 400-year uh, intertestamental period, before we have John the Baptist, and then, of course, Jesus come. And, of course, after that, it's all the New Testament. And so there's a few uh, prophets, uh, Zechariah, Malachi, I think, Haggai, who were in the same time, uh, as well as Ezra. Um, we're talking about 440 B.C. But the book of Nehemiah, the first six chapters are all about building the wall. They came back to Jerusalem after exiled uh, to the Babylonians, and then the Persians took over the Babylonians, and the Persians gave them uh, the permission to come back. Nehemiah came back, and they helped to rebuild Jerusalem. Ezra had come back before this, about 15 years or so, and had uh, been rebuilding on the temple. And so the temple in Jerusalem, it all goes together, and they're resettling the nation of Israel, even though at this point they were still under Persian rule. But the first six chapters are all about building the wall. When you think of Nehemiah, this is what most of the time it's taught as, is he's a great leader, organizer of men. Um, He's got tons of uh, leadership qualities that we have picked apart over the years, and there's been lots of good stuff in there. Uh, Then we see that the real purpose of this whole physical wall building uh, was chapters 8 through 10, the spiritual revival, bringing back the people of God to be the people of God. And this was simply a house, a home, a city for them to be in. Um, But it was never the end goal. Just like we are going into a new facility in the next year or so, um, that's not the goal. That's not the goal of churches. That might be a tool. Um, In some cases, it might be a necessity, depending on your situation. But ultimately, we just want to worship Jesus. We want to have a place to do that, and that's what it's all about. And so uh, those were chapters 8 through 10. 11 through 13 are all about organizing the community, and that's where all these lists have come in as people have come back and resettled into Jerusalem. And so now we're going to be in chapter 13, verses 1 through 31, and we're talking about the righteous king. Dumb, that is. So we've got a king in the kingdom of God, and his name is Jesus. And right now, the kingdom of God reigns in our hearts. It is a spiritual kingdom that one day will be physical in the sense that he will be here to physically reign. Until then, we are the tangible uh, kingdom of God. As it expands in us, as we obey the commands of Christ, we want this kingdom to expand. And so uh, there's a king, and that's Jesus, and there's us, his servants, and we are Uh, to live righteously. Now, spiritually, it's the blood of Christ on the cross that makes us righteous. You can't screw this up. It's his blood that makes us perfect. Uh, But we're called in our life to reflect that righteousness. The standards in the kingdom of God are high, and we don't want to abuse grace. We want to uh, walk in God's ways. That's what makes the kingdom of God the kingdom of God. It's a different kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom with different principles, uh, different king, different servants, and, and it just looks different than the world. And so we see the parallel of them resettling Jerusalem and the Israelites as the people of God being reestablished as the people of God, and, of course, the kingdom that we are part of now. I don't know if you've ever been in uh, or part of a team where the standard was raised, the bar was raised, and it caught you off guard a little bit. Um, some of you have. You've been a part of teams or companies, businesses, organizations, things where you thought, wow, 
I was not prepared for this. The standard uh, for um, work ethic or morality or um, whatever it might be has been raised. I know on a lesser note, Tara and I, over the last couple years, Silas, you know, he's been potty trained since he was two or three or whatever. And he's only four now, but when you're at home, you know, he just gets kind of lackadaisical on things. And so, um, like, he would have he would have wet pants sometimes, and we would just be so frustrated, and we would be like, why in the world is this still happening? And we would look at each other after we talked to him about it and walked through it with him. We'd look at each other and be like, what's he going to do in school? Like, is he going to pee his pants every single day? Like, what's going to happen? Like, because we know he has the capacity to do better, um, but for whatever reason at home, whatever discipline we had, I mean, we couldn't, we tried every angle. We couldn't get him to, to stop wetting his pants. And he was just bored. He was just like, eh, I just don't want to stop playing. And so he would do it. And we're like, oh, preschool is going to be messy. We're going to make sure he's got some extra clothes. And so we talked to him about it. And we said, dude, if you are in preschool and you do this, I, I honestly don't know what's going to happen. Like they could just call and say, hey, come pick him up. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. We talked about this. And um, well, we're three weeks in and he's been amazing. Now, it's only three weeks, but he has taken it to another level. After the very first day, I said, how was preschool, buddy? And he's like, it was good. I was like, were you nervous or scared or anything? He's like, yeah, I didn't want to pee my pants. And I, was like, I was like, see, he didn't have that fear at home. Like, he's like, okay, you pee all over our couch. He didn't care. It was mom and dad, even though we were strict about it. But the game has gone to another level. The standards are different. And for us in the kingdom of God, we want to make sure that we don't just abuse grace, that we don't just get used to this Christianity thing, that we don't enjoy the gospel and yet um, fail to live in righteousness. And so when we walk through this passage tonight, when you look at any passage, um, you're going to see two things. And this passage is no different. One is what we would call, when it comes to application, uh, in the air, or the big picture of this, how all the Bible ties together to paint a bigger story. Uh, but then we talk about on the ground, something that you can put your feet to today. Um, and so often in most passages in scripture, you're going to see there's application for both things that you need to do right now or things that you're being challenged in right now, but then also pointing you to a bigger picture. So the on the ground application for this passage is we're going to go kind of methodically. This whole chapter is about going um, through different topics and areas that he confronts with the Israelite people because they had sinned and committed not to sin. And then they had sinned again. And he's going through saying, I had to reform you this all over again. I had to come back and say, guys, what are you doing? And he puts them in their place. It gets comical at points. And so we're going to challenge each other tonight and saying, okay, are there areas where we need to repent? Are there areas where we need um, to take righteousness more serious? And then the big picture is that ultimately Jesus is the better Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes in. He tries to use his leadership, his influence. He had been governor for 12 years. Then he went back to the Persian king, came back, and he's going to find that the Israelites slipped back into their old sin, and he tries by force. And again, it's going to get weird by around verse 25 because he, he pulls hair and does all kinds of weird stuff to get them to act right. And we see that Jesus, um, he's the better Nehemiah. Um, he, not out of force, but out of grace compels us to change. And through his Holy Spirit, we have an internal change, not an external force, an internal um, compelling by the Holy Spirit, an empowerment by the Holy Spirit to live righteously. So we're going to jump on in. Let's walk through the first few verses, and i am usually got them up on the screen, but as we've done in the last couple chapters, there's so many verses uh, that 
I just got a little bit lazy here. And so we're going to read this together. If you've got a Bible, feel free to open up. Nehemiah 13, if you don't, we've got Bibles right over here. Feel free to sneak up here and grab one. And the first few verses go like this. On that day, now some people think that this is, okay, let me explain this real quick. Most of Nehemiah, they believe, came from what they call the Nehemiah Memoirs or that he had written down all this stuff, and then they later compiled it as a book. So chronologically, part of this, people don't know, did this happen like right after, or was it a long time after, or when exactly did it say, when it says on that day, um, but the best that we can understand is that they had the practice of reading the word of God, and somewhere down the line this happens. On that day, they read from the book of Moses, so that would be the Old Testament as they knew it, in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite, so these are people outside of the Israelites, should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. So this is something that happened hundreds of years ago. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Okay, let's stop right there. We talk about righteousness. You got to care about the company you keep. You got to care about your company. It says way back in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and Numbers 22. We're not going to get into it for the sake of time uh, tonight. But the story of how when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, they were starving. And these foreign people, the Moabites, the Ammonites, they had an opportunity to give them bread and water, and they didn't. Not only did they not do that for God's people, but they hired this dude, and he's got a story with a donkey that's kind of crazy. Go back to Numbers 22, and you can read up on that, um, to come and curse them. Because they were like, hey, we got these people living in our land now, because they were in the promised land, and they didn't want the Israelites in the promised land. And God says, no, to the 10th generation, you guys are never going to be a part of my people. You're going to want to be part of my people, but you're not going to be a part of my people. Now, it's important in case you wonder, um, did God condemn these people to never be able to be saved, basically? I mean, if it says you can't come into the assembly, assembly as they knew it would have been the ceremony of worship, the practice of worship, coming to the temple and worshiping with them. But we see all throughout the Old Testament what we call proselytes or those who were converted from other um, other countries, under other nations. They could become essentially Israelites through uh, a conversion process. Um, and so this is just saying, Hey, you guys aren't coming to worship, uh, with the Israelites ever. Um, but it wasn't like they couldn't be converted. And and if that makes sense, but the big idea is it's showing us that we got to be careful about who we associate with. Um, God had a chosen people and that's what the Israelites were. And they were separate. They were set apart from the other nations. Let me ask you, are there some people in your life that maybe it would be healthy uh, for you to be set apart from? You say, well, doesn't that contradict the Great Commission? Because aren't we supposed to reach all people? Yes, key word, we. We, as in the church, all of us together. And there might be some people that it's not terribly healthy for you to be around. There might be some people um, that you could reach, but God's going to have other people reach them. There's going to be some other people who these folks over here shouldn't be with, but you need to be with. And if you get back into the history of your old love stories and uh, some of the things maybe you did in the past, you can come uh, with a few names to mind. that Maybe it wouldn't be great for you to be Facebook friends with your high school sweetheart. Maybe it wouldn't be great for you to um, go and talk to some of the people who you ran with back in the day and maybe got into trouble with. It takes discernment to know who those people are um, that you should 
maybe not be around. And keep in mind, it's not always a forever kind of thing, but you have to, you have to know um, that the Holy Spirit will guide you and give you discernment and whether you should be with him. Let me give you an example. I was a convicted felon when I was 18, spent first two months of college in jail, right? And so growing up in little Randolph, Kansas, we had 23 people in my class. So for the first 18 years, I knew like these 10 guys. There's like 10 guys, 10 girls in the class. And I was friends with them and they were like, I mean, they were all we knew. And so we had a close bond. And when I got kicked out of school, when I went to jail, they're all um, like, man, well, in the world booth, well, you, you know, you're not partying with us. You're not hanging out with us anymore. They were going to K-State. I was in jail in Manhattan. So when I naturally got out of jail, they're like, okay, you can come party with us. We're all on freshman in college now. We're having fun. And I knew like, oh man, I can't do this. Because at the same time of me getting in trouble, I was also starting to seek out God. And at that point, I don't think I was a believer, um, but I wanted I wanted what Christianity promised, and I found myself investing in um, in God a little bit. And I remember one night I finally gave in to him, and it was it was a Friday or Saturday night. And they said, "Let's go to a party." And I knew because I was on probation, I was in, on intensive supervision. So for three years, I had to go, I had to do drug tests every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I mean, I had to go see my probation officer all the time. And if I messed up, I had to serve the rest of my 36-month sentence in the state penitentiary in Leavenworth. And if you're familiar <laughs> with Leavenworth, you don't want to go there. Um, it's not the county jail. And I thought, man, I, I can't screw this up. So I went with them because I kind of finally gave in, and I I was in this house party, and it was packed full of people, and everyone had a beer, everyone was just hanging out, and I remember kind of being separated from my friends, but there was just so many people that were all crunched together, and all of a sudden, someone grabs my shirt, and I turn around, and it was an undercover cop, and they're asking for my ID, and I went berserk. I pushed them I pushed through everyone, and I ran out of that. I barreled over whoever was in front of me, and I ran down the alley, and I found myself at midnight in the fall walking through the streets of Manhattan thinking, what am I doing with my life? If I would have got caught, and at that point thinking maybe I still will tonight, like I'm going to prison. And I just knew. I love my friends, but I can't hang out with them right now. Like, I just can't hang out with them. And even 15 years later, um, I found that I haven't been reaching out to them like maybe I thought I would have. I talked to some of them on occasion, but you got to understand this. The difference, and it can be a super fine line, between called to reach and guilty by association, which is what they were facing here, comes down to this one question. In most cases, who influences who? If you're trying to discern, do I reach out to him? Do I not? You got to ask yourself, who's influencing who? Because if you know you shouldn't go to that ex-boyfriend or girlfriend's house to tell him about Jesus because you might do something stupid, who's influencing who? If you know hanging out with these friends is going to get you in trouble because you shouldn't be drinking or you shouldn't be raising a ruckus or you shouldn't be doing whatever, who's influencing who? And there's going to be just wisdom and maybe common sense where you realize maybe at this point in my walk with Jesus, they're going to influence me in ways that aren't healthy more than I would influence them. And I need, even if I want them to be saved, I need to pull away and I need to pray that someone else is going to be that person. 
So you got to know who's influencing who. That's a hard, um, hard decision sometimes. Verses 4 through 9 says this. Now before this, so this is a time period of some time, obviously before. Eliashib, you're going to hear a couple of Eliashibs. One seems to be the priest, one a high priest, but it seems to be two different people. You'll see that again later in the chapter. Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, so we're talking temple, and who was related to Tobiah. Remember Tobiah? He was a punk. He was one of the dudes who um, was trying to bring down Nehemiah and this whole wall building thing a few chapters ago. Prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked to leave, I asked, I asked leave of the king. So again, he was governor for 12 years. At this point, he's coming back. He's seen all that had happened that was not good after he had his initial reform. And he obviously had some sort of pull because he makes some things right. But we don't know if he was governor at that point. Probably not. He just came back on a visit. And he came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. So if you've ever seen one of those cops shows and you see him do something crazy and someone's throwing someone's belongings out on the street and you're like, ooh, she's mad. There's a little bit of the drama going on here. He throws all her stuff or all his stuff out. I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Second thing we see when it comes to righteousness, you got to care about your temple. You got to care about your temple. Of course, talking about the temple of God here in Nehemiah chapter 13. But the sins that you see in here, there's a bunch of sins, but they're really twofold. The first one is Tobias was wicked. Tobias was wicked, and he hated the things of God, didn't want the wall built, and he already showed earlier that he was a punk, and he was trying to threaten, 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 threaten to get Nehemiah to stop building the wall. And so, not only that, he was an Ammonite. And if you see from the previous few verses, they already don't want the Ammonites to be hanging out with them in worship ceremonies. So what happens? In verse 4, he says, oh, if you don't think it was weird enough that we were all like intermarried with these Ammonites and Moabites, let me tell you this. One time, this priest who wasn't even in charge, because only the high priest would ultimately be in charge of the chambers. He didn't have the permission to. He let part of the temple be inhabited as like a sinking bachelor pad for the worst Ammonite of all. The one who tried to get this whole thing shut down. You can picture how ticked off Nehemiah is. He's like, you've got to be kidding me. Tobiah, you are a punk. You've been messing up everything. And one of our own priests lets you have a bachelor pad in the temple of God. So it wasn't cool. The second thing is, is obviously the big picture of just the desecration of the temple. We are, um, we should remember, obviously Jesus had the same righteous anger towards his father's house being desecrated because they were trying to sell stuff uh, in it and take advantage of the people. And so this is almost a little bit of a foreshadowing <clears throat> of that. So you say, well, okay, we don't have a temple anymore, right? It's been 2,000 years, no physical temple. So we don't have to worry about the desecration. Well, you know. Um, if you've been around church for a while, we do have a temple and it's your body, right? And the big idea of this passage is we need to stop putting wicked things in holy places. We need to quit allowing wicked things to live in holy places. When Tara and I met, 
Um, I remember I would see her at the gym, and I was 155 pounds, and I had a lawn care business, and I worked six days a week mowing these lawns, and I stayed thin, and six days a week after I would mow those lawns, I'd come and I'd work out for about an hour, and I remember she would be in, like, these classes um, doing whatever little kickbox, I don't know, whatever, at the Genesis in Hutchinson, and she would come out, and I would strategically make sure that I ran over and went to this one ab machine that was, everyone had to walk by it, and I would be strapped up, and I'd be doing, oh, and then she'd be walking, so this is the kind of thing you could have a conversation with, like, hey, how are you doing, and we would, uh, I'd just get her attention, and she was walking by, I wanted to make sure she knew what was going on over here, and I was doing all right, I remember I they had these deals at, at Genesis where they would measure your body fat. And I was like, three and a half percent. I never, I was like, man, I look back at that, I'm like, three and a half percent. Yeah, I ain't never getting close to that again. But what happened was, we eventually got together, God ordained, I believe, and we, being married, um, decided to skip what, you know, college students call the freshman 15, and we just went ahead and doubled that up, and at least for myself, I won't won't speak for her. And we were eating out all the time. I was getting way past 3% body fat. And I remember after about two years of marriage, I thought it was incredibly ironic because I was in seminary the whole time trying to move forward in spiritual things. And yet, my body was going the other way. I was getting all kinds of knowledge in my brain, but I was feeling this thing with all kinds of unhealthy stuff. And I remember finding it difficult when I got to the end of my 20s and even early 30s to get back into working out um, because I'd been out of shape for a couple of years. And I remember thinking to myself, and this is ultimately what has been my motivation, like if I'm preaching the gospel, if I'm teaching the word of God, if I'm making disciples, God knows when I'm going to die. He knows everything about it, right? Um, but like if I can prolong my life just a little bit longer, and I'm making a kingdom impact, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And I started taking the temple that is our body because the Spirit of God indwells all believers a little bit more serious than I did before. But let me challenge you when it comes to the temple. Are you desecrating it? What's living in your mind? Are you letting your thoughts run wild with things? It could be anything from um, thoughts sexually that are unhealthy all the way to you don't gossip maybe anymore, but you judge people in your mind in a way that's unhealthy. Um, maybe you worry in ways that you've always thought, well, worrying is caring, but it's not. It's sometimes sinful if you don't trust God in things that you should be, but you're letting your mind run wild with thoughts that you shouldn't. It's not always a sin to have a thought pop into your mind. The sin comes when you entertain things that you shouldn't entertain because you can take captive your thoughts and make them obedient to Christ, Second Corinthians 10.5. What about your heart? Are you letting bitterness, resentment, wicked things live in a holy place? What about your body? Are you kind of, hmm, about your body? You got to understand, it's not your body. It's not your body anymore. It's God's. And you're a steward of it. And I can tell you straight up, ministry-wise, when it comes to making disciples, people have a, I'm just going to, this is going to sound horrible. But people, when they look at a preacher or a pastor who's completely out of shape, they have a hard time listening to him about spiritual truths when they know he doesn't take care of himself. I've had people sit across 
having coffee with them, they say, I just can't respect someone who won't take care of themselves. Is that right? Is it wrong? It is what it is. It is what it is. Imagine there's a little bit of truth and a little bit of unhealthy judgment in that. But what do you do? You do what Nehemiah did in these verses. He threw everything out. Swift, quick action. No excuses. Something's in the house that shouldn't be in the house. We're throwing it on the street. We ain't going through any process. We're not going to get the opinion of a hundred other people. We're not going to call a committee together to figure out, should he be here or should he not? I know what the word of God says. I know what the temple is. I know it's not valuable because the gold around it, it's valuable because the God inside of it. And I'm going to do what I know is right. And I'm not making excuses. I'm just going to do it because it's not our temple. It's God's. Got to get serious about some things in your life that maybe you've let righteousness become a little lax in. It's not yours. I'll say this on the flip side for those of us who might um, be on the opposite end when it comes to working out. Your motivation can't be yourself. It can't be vanity. Christians aren't. um, We're not working out. We're not trying to eat right because we want... uh, people to love the way we look or we want to love the way we look. We do it because it's God's temple and we want to take care of it. There's a healthy amount of exercise, but we can't idolize it on the same token. Number three, got to care about your finances. Verses 10 through 14. He says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So remember, the Levites, they were to live off of what the other people gave them. So 10% of the tithes went to the Levites because they got kids. They got stuff. They got to um, live and survive. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So they didn't have what they needed. So they went back and they were just started working to get food and whatnot. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses so they could have something to eat. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God. You'll see this. You see, he has these prayers throughout this chapter. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So ultimately, they weren't taking care of their leaders. They weren't taking care of the Levites. Um, and they weren't taking care of their finances. Um, they were lack, lackadaisical. You see this in all these areas. They just got to the point where they knew what was right, but they're like, yeah, we're going to do a little less, a little less, a little less. They become stagnant. Does this sound familiar? I mean, if you looked at the Midwest and what we struggle with in the church the most, um, this is where I think the primary spiritual warfare comes in the church, is that we become stagnant. We know what's right, but then as time goes, we hear so many sermons. We come to so many Wednesday night Bible studies. We find ourselves knowing what's right, We've got daily devotions. We read the same stuff, but we just become less zealous about doing what's right. And you've got to make sure you don't fall into that trap in taking righteousness for granted or not taking it serious and abusing the grace of God. And it wasn't just that they had money issues and that 
they were spending money on the wrong things. It's that they weren't spending money on the right things. God told them, take care of these people. Take care of your leaders. So I don't know what they were spending their money on. They could have been spending their money on the wrong things. They just weren't spending their money on the right things. Say, well, I'm doing okay financially. I mean, our budget's not like super tight, or maybe we don't have a budget right now, but like we're, we're keeping our head above water. Listen, again, just like your body, finances are not your own, right? You're stewarding this for God and his kingdom. Everything. We talk about the kingdom of God being a spiritual thing in here, but it comes and reflects itself through your life, your stuff even, and what you choose to do with it. And you've got to understand, ultimately, finances are a tool for blessing, not just something for survival. I mean, think about it. Let me ask you a weird question. Yeah, this will probably be weird. Do you care? Tara's sitting in the back. So let's just, this is, this is going to be fun. You don't have to answer this out loud. I, I don't tell her. I should, I should tell you about some of this stuff. <laughs> Sometimes I just got to zip it. So here's the question. Now it's not nearly as weird as you're expecting. Do you care about Tara and I's finances? Like our personal finances, what we spend our money on. I know it's a weird question. But technically, like, I get my money from you all. <laughs> I mean, you guys are the ones paying the tab. You guys are giving money to the church, and if you go look at any church budget, ours even, it's going to be probably, um, more than likely, it's going to be about 50% staff and 50% everything else. If you look at the amount of money at, from the local church level that's given to just like ministry ministry, um, even though obviously the leadership is here for ministry, it's a small percentage. So you got to know at any local church that you're at, <laughs> we hired the right people. Have we hired people who, who are called, who do well, who are faithful in the little things and the big things? But when you get back to that original question, do you care about what's going on in Tara and I's life? Some of you probably think, well, I mean, we want you to be a good example, but you can kind of do what you want with your own money. Well, let me take it one step further. What if I asked you for a raise? Like a big raise. Like what if I have a ton of student loans? What if we wanted a nicer house? What if we saw y'all's lifestyle and said, I want some of that? Just kidding, just kidding. You know, all over America, pastors are sitting with committees and boards talking about how they need raises. Happens on a regular basis because they want their lifestyle to increase. Or maybe they got debt from the past that they want to pay off. Let me flip it. What if I told you that we didn't have any debt and that we don't need to receive as much money from the church. We want to give some of it just straight back to you. Would you care then? The reason I'm asking these odd questions is because you look and you say, well, actually, if your church budget's a couple hundred thousand and you get paid this amount, well, what you do if you, is kind of a big deal for the rest of the ministry of the church. And that's just Tara and I. Here's the thing. We're two people out of 400 here at Crosspoint. What if we went to all of us and said, what are you doing personally with your finances? 
Because here's the bottom line. If Christians took their finances serious and their budget serious and said, you know what, we're going to trim up and we're going to live lifestyles that aren't reckless, but they're going to be within our means and we're going to be wise and we don't have to not have any fun in life, but we're going to be smart. You got to understand, it's not harmless. Your personal finances don't just affect you. They are directly related to kingdom impact. And if I could tell you about Tara and I's finances and you could look at it real easy because you say, we see what the church budget is. We see what we're paying you. And if you want to raise, that's going to impact the whole ministry. And if you say, hey, we'll give you half of our money back because we don't need it because we don't have any debt and we're doing just fine. That's going to bless the ministry. But if the same goes, the same principle goes for every other person in this room in church. Every dollar you're not spending on debt, every dollar that isn't just randomly floating out there into Nowheresville because it doesn't have a, a, a name attached to it, that could be dollars going to the kingdom of God, to charities that you support, to the poor, to things that when you see someone has a need, you can actually give them money. Your finances aren't about you. Like everything else, they're about the kingdom of God. How are you doing with your finances? Are you taking it serious? Coming up in January, this is a nice little plug. We're going to be walking through financial peace. We're doing something we call momentum, where essentially the church shuts down for 10 weeks um, when it comes to other ministries. And we're going to try to get 80% at least of the people at Crosspoint all over the network, every single location. Uh, so our Wednesday night studies, our grow groups, everything are going to do financial peace together. And so... Um, if you've never been through Dave Ramsey's financial piece, um, it might be something that can really help you get serious about things. Verses 15 through 22. Fourth thing we see is you got to care about your Sabbath rest. Verse 15 says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. So you shouldn't be working, but they were working. For those of you who don't know, Sabbath is uh, the day of rest. God created everything in six days. He rested on the seventh. He tells us to do the same. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So they shouldn't be working. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. So they're selling stuff too. The Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath. So all the other people are coming in and buying from the Jews on the Sabbath because they know the Jews don't care about their own, their own moral laws. To the people of Judah, in Jerusalem itself, he says, then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Because they didn't obey the laws of God. Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So he's making a big deal out of the Sabbath. And we'll get to that in a second as to why. As soon as it began to grow dark, I love it. This is going to get weird a little bit. At the gates of Jerusalem, Before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. I love it. He's saying, so I know y'all, I can't even trust you because you're going to sell stuff and you're all about making money and doing your thing on the Sabbath. And so you don't care about God. You just care about building your own little kingdoms up and everyone in the round, they know it. So they come to sell stuff. So here's what I'm going to do. When it gets dark the night before the Sabbath, I'm going to come. So this would be Friday night essentially for them because the Sabbath for them was, was Saturdays. Um, 
I'm going to come and I'm going to shut the doors to the city and I'm going to post guards there so that no one can even come. And this is, this is good. This is good. It gets into what the locals do. And I stationed some of my servants, verse 19, at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem. I love it. He says once or twice. So the the other people who are going to come sell stuff, they gave it a shot once or twice. And then it says in verse 21, but I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Let me explain this. He's not laying hands on to pray for him. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. I would love to have been there for that encounter. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. This is important when it says it talks about purity and keeping the Sabbath day holy. When we get to the application, you'll see why. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Let me say <clears throat> let me say this real quick. I um the word steadfast love, it's hesed or chesed in Hebrew. And I'll never forget it because I wrote a very lengthy paper in seminary about this one word. But this is one of the most common words used uh, in the Old Testament over and over and over again about God's feelings for humanity. And it's usually translated into steadfast love. Don't miss it. This whole chapter is about, hey, you guys stunk over here and I came to save the day, is what Nehemiah is saying. You guys stunk over here and I came to save the day. And he did all these different topics. But the great hope, is these prayers where he talks about God's steadfast love. God is patient. God is about to go through, they're about to go through a 400 year period um, where no prophet comes until John the Baptist. And, and so don't lose sight of that amazing love and patience that God has with his people that he didn't immediately just crunch them because he could have. But we see, we've got to care about, got to care about the Sabbath. We've got to care about rest. Now, do we need to take a Sabbath in order to be saved? Yes or no? No. So it doesn't have anything to do with forgiveness of sins. Um, We see Jesus says when he was picking grains off with his disciples, and he references a thousand years earlier, David and his men did the same thing. And he reminds the Pharisees who were legalistic about making sure you got your day off each week, um, that ultimately the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. This was meant to be a blessing. So don't be legalistic about it. But for those of us who just ignore it completely, I think that's a sin in the opposite direction. I think we've got to be careful that we don't um, ignore what God commanded in the Old Testament because those very things are important for us to do today because they're a time of physical rest. If God's going to take rest, and we know he didn't need it, you and I need it. We need physical rest. We need a time where we worship. We need a time where we have solitude. Think about all the things we do. We go on our phone all the time. We need mental breaks, times where we can just worship God, times where we can get alone, where we can actually hear God speak. How many of us are familiar with solitude anymore? It's such a discipline for the monks now, but is it a discipline for the evangelical church? Do we know what it's like to get alone, to worship God, to have physical rest, to have our focus on God, to think about God, to just to just have time with God, not just your daily devotion, but a whole day. Doesn't mean you have to sit in a room by yourself, but to a large degree, to be able to think about him with your family, to talk about the things of God, to just rest and enjoy God. You say, I've heard a thousand sermons about taking a Sabbath. 
and about rest, and I get it, but you don't understand I'm busy. I'm busy. Guys, we all have 24 hours in our schedule, and we all dictate what we do. There might be a few things in your life that you don't get to choose, but by and large, we choose what we do with our own schedules. You say, well, my job is like this. You chose your job. (laughs) Just get real. You choose these things. So let's not ever find ourselves at any point in life making excuses for why we can't do what God tells us to do. If you find yourself making excuses, then there might need to be a whole different reorientation of your life to the things of God because we've gotten completely out of whack. Here's the big deal about a Sabbath. We're not going to get legalistic, but I want to make an argument for why it's so incredibly important. I hate using the term that I'm about to use, but I'll do it just for the sake of a lack of better terms. It's a gateway command. The very nature of it shows not just will you be obedient to one command, it shows your entire view on God. It shows who are you utterly dependent on, yourself or God. That's what the Sabbath day is for. It's for you to realize, like, I, I, I'm not here to build up my own kingdom, so I'm not going to work crazy hours on the Sabbath. I'm not going to do what everyone else does. I'm, you saw what they got in trouble. For. It wasn't like they were just like, no, we're just doing nothing, you know, just hanging out on the Sabbath. Like, they were building their own kingdom economically. Making money got in the way of obeying the commands of God. Say, well, God bless me with this job. If you find yourself consistently, there's seasons of life, we get it, where times are hard, or you have to work certain hours. But if you find yourself claiming God has provided and blessed in one way so that you can disobey him in another way, you might want to pull back on that. Does that make sense? I've heard a lot of people say, well, God gave me this job, and i got to work seven days a week. How dare you say that I'm somehow disobeying God? God can give you another job, too. shows who you're dependent on, whose kingdom are you trying to build. It tells you so much about what you think about God. Silas hates going to bed. At the end of the day, it's been a bear, especially lately, because we lay him down, we read our books, we pray, we do all the the whole nine yards, and then he'll say, like last night, he's like, Dad, why can't I just stay up as late as you guys stay up? And why can't I just go upstairs? And mom, will you leave the hall? Will you leave the light on? And and then he screams through the monitors. Tell me what you're doing out there, because Tara's in the kitchen. She's like, I'm I'm just doing something. Leave me alone. And like he just he just wants to be up. And we go through the same stuff all the time where I'm I'm telling him and Tara's telling him like, buddy, like dude, when you get older, like in college, you're gonna wish you had this amount of sleep. Like this is. This is amazing. Like, I wish, like, you get 12 hours. Like, we put you to bed, like, 7.30 or 8, and then you, you don't have to wake up the next day, even on preschool days till 8 o'clock. Like, you get a solid 12 hours. And he's, he's used those 12 hours in general since he was born. Like, he, but he, he struggles with it. And as a father, I struggle with it because I'm sitting here thinking, dude, you're telling me all about your fears and why you can't do it. You're telling me all about your excuses and why you don't think you should have to rest. As if, like, we're keeping you from something good. Because we know if you stay up, whatever you do in the next hour or two hours, you're going to be a little crab apple. And you're going to be a pain. 
And you might think it's going to be an amazing time that somehow you're missing out on, but you're going to be miserable and we're going to be miserable. And so you need to go to sleep. And I think to myself as a dad, how can I communicate that I'm not withholding blessing from him, but the very rest that I'm telling him to take is the blessing. And I wonder how many times we've said the same things to God. God, you don't understand. I got to work. I got to do these things. We've got so many programs and so many kids events and so many things. God, how could you take this away from us? We're just busy. It's 2018. How many times we've feared what it would be like to actually take a day off because we're missing out on other things. And God's saying, you have got to understand this basic premise or you will not understand any, you will not understand the Bible at all. When I give you commands, Old Testament and new, they are not to withhold blessing from you. They are the blessing. How many youth groups are going to have way too many conversations about how far a boy and a girl can go together before too far is too far? Like we have it built in in our minds that the commands of God are killjoys. But when you actually live them out, you realize there's a reason the psalmist at the very end of Psalms says, we delight in your decrees over and over and over. We delight in your decrees. We're going to go on about how amazing the law of the Lord is. Because those who actually live it realize God's giving us blessings in these things. They in and of themselves are blessings. Because he knows what's best for us. So what do you do? I'd say two quick things. Number one, you've got to shut the door. That's what Nehemiah did. He came out the night before and said, I'm shutting the door. Don't even give your schedule the opportunity to work on the Sabbath. You pick a day, you pick time, and you say, you know what? I can't make excuses saying, well, we just had to do this on Saturday or Sunday or whatever day you have. Just block it off. Again, you ain't got to be legalistic about it, but you got to be disciplined about it. The second thing I would say is purify. Nehemiah did something a little bit odd. He went and got the Levites and he said, purify yourself, cleanse yourself, and come out here and do this. And then he said, make the day holy. Again, don't take a Sabbath day and sit there and dwell thinking, well, I'm just missing out on something amazing. No, rest, enjoy it. Even do some things that are fun, but think about God on that day and train yourself, train your family, talk to your kids about what it means to focus on God. You can go and enjoy life on the Sabbath day, but it's a whole different ballgame when you say, oh, this is my Sabbath day, and you don't think about God at all compared to, no, I'm resting physically, and I'm thinking about God throughout the day in ways that are refreshing and honoring to him, refreshing to me. If you question, am I taking a Sabbath or not? Those would be the two big indicators. Are you actually getting some physical rest of some sort? And are you focusing on God? Those would be the two big things I think that would probably probably mark it. All right, moving quickly here at the end, verses 23 through 27, we've got to care about our relationships. It says in verse 23, In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amen and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them. Oh, this is my favorite verse. Oh, listen to this. You want to get crazy. Look at verse 25. (laughs) And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. 
And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons. Could you picture showing up to like a church meeting and talk about conflict resolution and saying, okay, we got two teachings tonight, Old Testament, New Testament. New Testament, Matthew 18. You take it to your neighbor, you got to sin, you take a couple with you. If he won't listen, you go do this in front of the church. If he won't listen after that, okay, it makes sense. Or Nehemiah's way, fivefold. Number one, you confront them. I can do that. Number two, you curse them. Okay, I can do that. Number three, you beat some of them. Not all of them, just some of them. Number four, pull out hair only when you need to. Number five, force them to take an oath to never screw up again. I could get behind this. This is interesting. Let me make this point. Not all things in the Bible are (laughs) for you to do. Um, Some things are examples of, of what not to do. I I'm sure God appreciates his zeal, but the way he went about it is not something we see as to be commended. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take the daughters for your sons or yourselves. And he goes into King Solomon. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? So he married tons of women, over a thousand. Well, 300, then he had like 700 concubines, which were mistresses essentially. And a bunch of them were from foreign lands. Among the many nations, there was no king like him. So he was above all. And he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made, him even, made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Okay, let's talk about relationships and marriage here for a second. So here, here's the big issue. Ultimately, um, Nehemiah is ticked for a couple reasons. Number one, he saw history repeating itself. So look for patterns in your life, especially those of you who are dating people. Are you making the same mistakes of dating the wrong people, people who don't love God? Also, he saw because 500 years earlier, roughly 500 years earlier, Solomon made all these mistakes. Then the Israelites were in exile. They made the mistakes again. And now they're making the mistakes again. And he's just frustrated at history repeating itself. But here's the big issue with the intermarriage. It wasn't a race thing. It wasn't an ethnicity thing. It wasn't a national thing. The biggest issue with God's chosen people intermarrying other nations and foreign countries is because God said from the beginning, if you do this, you will be prone to follow their gods. The Canaanite gods. Because he knows how people work. And he knows how we're influenced. And so Nehemiah is saying, you guys, you went out. Some of you went out and you married these other folks. And you know they don't follow our God. And some of your kids, they speak the language of them more than us. So what does that mean? That means when they come to worship here, they're not going to understand half of what's said. It's just one more thing that's pulling them to ultimately worshiping the gods of these other people. And he goes nutso on him. Like he's angry. For us, God doesn't tell us, oh, don't marry this nation. Don't marry people from over here. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about race. But we are commanded, don't marry unbelievers. And we probably need to preach that a little more often. Don't marry unbelievers. Let me ask you, are you dating one? Are you married to one? I don't want to condemn you. We've got to deal with what we're actually in. If that's where you're at, we've got to deal with where you're at. But if you argue, well, that's why I date them, so that I can get to know them, stop. You need to know before you put yourself out there, if you're dating, you need to know where they stand with God long before you decide whether you're going to be in a relationship. And it's possible. It might not look like dating the way that our culture says dating should look like, 
but it looks like wisdom. You don't have to get on an app and meet someone and decide that you're going to be with them before you've ever even met them face to face. You can find out about that person. You can talk to them. You can, you can find out where they stand with God and then decide, is this worth pursuing? Because ultimately, if you date to marry, which is where I would hope you'd be if you're going to date at all, then you've got to know that you're not going to find yourself at the brink of marriage in some premarital counseling office, like one 50 feet that way, saying, well, I just feel like if we get married, things will be better because he's been going to church with me for a while. And then some pastor's got to tell you, I won't even marry unbelievers. I won't marry a Christian with an unbeliever or two unbelievers together. Now I'll minister to them all day long. I'll share Jesus with them all day long, but I'm not going to lock them in bondage by sealing that thing up in a covenant. You say, what if I'm, what if I'm married to one? Well, that's hard. I've met many, 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 many women and men who have been married to unbelievers. Sometimes you marry someone and you think you know them and, and you find out maybe they're on a little bit different path after you get married than you thought they were. You pray for them, you love them, you minister to them, you encourage them. You share Jesus with them. You do what you would do with any other person that you were trying to disciple. But don't fall into that lie that you can change people. If you see one great frustration in here, it's Nehemiah going nutso on these people. He tried to force them to change. He literally pulled their hair and made them, forced them to take an oath. That's some of us with our spouses. That's some of us with people we're dating. We want them to change so bad, and we think, oh, if we just get married, it'll change. If we just have a kid, it'll change. If we just do this, it'll change. No. If the Spirit of God draws them in, you share the good news of Jesus with them, they get saved, then they'll definitely change. But you can't force them into it. If you're in a cycle of being with the wrong people, break that cycle. If you're married, I would say there's hope, though. There's always hope in Christ. And if you got Christ, there's hope. Um, so persevere. Last but not least, care enough to ask Jesus to clean you up. Verses 28 through 31, Nehemiah wraps up his book. He says, And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest. So this seems to be a second Eliashib, because the other one was just a priest, and this one's a high priest. <clears throat> scholars believe there's probably a difference, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Remember Sanballat? He was the other crazy guy. You had Tobiah and Sanballat, the two guys who hated Nehemiah and wanted to end this building of the wall. So both of them come back here in the 13th chapter. Therefore, I chased him from me. <laughs> he chased this dude who was the son of the high priest. This is, this is Jerry Springer stuff. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. This is the key, verse 31. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Nehemiah did what he could. It says, I cleansed them. So the people are jacked up. The priest, 
the beginning of this is jacked up, letting Tobiah come in. The high priest is jacked up, and the high priest kids are associated with Sanballat, who was another jacked up dude who was the same as Tobiah. Nehemiah, the one who's sitting here saying, remember me for all that I've done good, he's kind of jacked up. Talk about Nehemiah is a great leader. Do you remember that he would be fired at every single place any of us work if he did what he did in chapter 13 to any other employee? I just pulled their hair, I forced them to take an oath, and I beat them. Nehemiah was a broken man like we are. Jesus is the better Nehemiah. We need a better cleansing. He cleansed them through forcing them to physically be away from these other nations, from physically doing these different things. But we still need a better cleansing. We need an internal compelling by grace, not an external force. Nehemiah tried to clean. 400 years later, John the Baptist came and had a powwow in the desert, bringing people out to repent of sin and to be cleansed by water. But in Luke 3, verse 15, it says, The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John could be the Christ. This is John the Baptist. Verse 16, it says, John answered all of them, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You see, we're not cleansed by force anymore. We're not cleansed by water or baptism. But that baptism symbolizes a cleansing that has to be much deeper in the very soul of man. We are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb. That's the only thing that's going to change a human being. You can force them like Nehemiah all day long. You can want it for them all day long. You can be frustrated with them all day long. You can come and preach the Word of God and set your family up for success all day long. But only Jesus can change them. Only Jesus can do such a miraculous work in their heart that they will want to change in ways that you could never want for them and will have a power in ways that you could never empower them. Because ultimately, Nehemiah was a great reformer, but no reformer is greater than the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you and he lives in every believer, he's going to convict, he's going to tell you what's wrong, but he's going to empower you to be able to be victorious over sin and to walk in righteousness. For those of you who want someone to change so much um, that your heart hurts, maybe you're married to an unbeliever, maybe you're with someone who doesn't love the Lord and you, you don't know um, what to do. I could give you a bunch of positive examples. Um, but let me end this sermon kind of like Nehemiah ends his book on a bit of a somber note with some hope. Um. I talk to Silas all the time about spiritual things. Tara does as well. Um, we talk about Jesus. We talk about the gospel. We, we talk about the things I talk to you about. And you may or may not agree with my parenting approach, but I talk to him like, a, like an adult um, when it comes to spiritual things. Like we get real. I don't want him to grow up in some sort of delusional view on God and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So one day we were talking and understand this is not something I would say to him all the time, but this is something I, we just kind of got in conversation to the point of. Because he, he wasn't caring at all about like any of the spiritual stuff. Like he doesn't have a spiritual bone in his body. And after months of this, um, 
finally, I, I was talking to him about heaven and stuff, and he was acting like he was going to heaven. Like that he's got like this relationship with God. But like he doesn't want to pray. He doesn't want to talk about the gospel. He doesn't want to do anything. And I just saw this over months. I was like, man, he thinks he's going to heaven. Like this little guy thinks he's going to heaven. And so I told him one day, I said, Cy, dude, I'm going to heaven. Because Jesus is my Lord. He's my Savior. I have trusted him as Lord and Savior. I follow him. And you don't have to guess. You want to know why, little buddy? So why? I said, because there's fruit in my life that's evidence of a relationship with Jesus. So you don't have to guess. I said, Mama, Mama's going to heaven. And I gave him all the same reasons why. And I said, as for you, (laughs) as for you, he looks up at me. I said, dude, I don't know. But I can tell you this. If you think because you're the pastor's kid that all of a sudden we're going to like be able to pull you into heaven. It doesn't work that way, buddy. I said, you say you talk about heaven, but then when we talk about the things of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you don't seem to care at all. I said, you don't, you don't seem to care at all about any of this stuff, man. And in that moment, we had a tender moment and a connection. Um, that pastor and pastor's kid, father and son have. At least some do. Well, I looked at him, and I could tell he was getting kind of sensitive about the subject. And I said, dude, you don't seem to care at all. And after that, I looked down at him, and he looked up at me, and his little lip kind of popped out, and he started quivering a little bit. And I saw he kind of had a little puppy dog face. And after I said, you don't seem to care at all, he looks up at me, and he says, I don't. <laughs> and he, and he, just, he just didn't. He just said, I don't. I don't care about any of it. And I said, fair enough. And we ended the conversation. And that was it. And that was it. Like, that's, the last, that's what happened. I said, dude, I don't think you have a relationship with Jesus. You don't seem to care about anything. And he looked up at me and said, I don't. I don't. I don't, Dad. But I appreciate his honesty. I appreciate finding out where he actually is. Even at four, he's starting to understand some things. But you know what? I didn't leave it there. I said, buddy, if you want to change, you can ask Jesus for help. You can call out to him anytime. But every time you're frustrated and all these things that we talk to you about, call out to God. Call him. You can do that anytime, buddy. And we keep discipling. We keep ministering to him. And I've seen his heart become more and more sensitive to the things of God. But ultimately, I want to encourage you, if you're in that place and you're thinking, I don't know if my spouse is ever going to get it. I don't know if my friend's ever going to get it. I don't know if they're ever going to get it. Or maybe you're the one who doesn't seem to ever get it. The gospel is still good news. It's still good news, and the offer and the invitation is still there. You can call out to Jesus anytime, right now, and he will clean you up in a way that no man or woman could ever clean you up at the soul level. And 400 years later, some of these same descendants came in contact with the same Jesus. And he offered them the same stuff he's offering you today. And there is incredible hope in that. Because Jesus is the better Nehemiah. Let's pray.